Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. March for Our Lives and the Parkland Survivors continue to dominate public debate. We talk with Dr. Dana Fisher about who actually showed up and how the march might influence future activism. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Please go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and sign up for our email newsletter. We're going to start sharing announcements about our upcoming book in the email as long as long reads were interested in that week and feedback from you guys. We're going to talk about the situation happening in Kentucky right now that's making national headlines, the news that China is starting to retaliate in the trade conversation with President Trump, the shooting of Stefan Clark in Sacramento. And then for our main segment, we'll talk with Dr. Dana Fisher about March for Our Lives. After we talk with her about who actually attended the march and some of the social science going on there, we're going to discuss the coverage of March for Our Lives and the battle around Laura Ingram and just some of the ways that 
the framing of this entire event has changed the conversation. And we'll end, as always, with what's on our mind outside of politics. So our state of Kentucky has one of the worst funded pensions in the nation. We are about $40 billion short of a properly funded pension. With a B. (laughs) With a B. Due to a lot of reasons, which is a lack of the appropriate level of contribution, a um, underestimating of the growth of the pension, and the financial crisis, which is really important to me, considering some of the changes just passed by our state legislators. Beth, you had a great phrase for the um, the way in which our governor and the Republican-controlled House and Senate passed changes to the pension in an effort to address this crisis. I love the divine secrets of the Yaya sisterhood. I always have. Me too. And I think that borrowing from that literary masterpiece, (laughs) Republicans in Kentucky have taken a problem, chewed all the flavor out of it, and then stuck it in their hair. They really handled it in the worst possible way. And look, there is not a great way to deal with this problem. We've talked about this on the podcast before. We had our friend Angie on, who is a public employee in Kentucky, to talk about the pension as a public employee, Angie said, look, I understand that some changes have to happen here. This problem must be solved. And I think there are a lot of rational, reasonable people in Kentucky who have that frame of mind. I also mm-hmm. understand that anytime you are talking about takeaways or changes that negatively affect people's compensation, you're going to have a whole host of people who are not cool-headed and rational and reasonable about it. This is a really difficult problem to solve, and it would have been difficult to solve under any circumstances. And so the first thing that I want to say in every conversation about this is that I appreciate that the governor wants to take this on. I appreciate that our legislators are trying to do something about this because the easiest, most politically expedient thing would be to leave it alone and make it somebody else's problem, as has Mm -hmm. been done many times before them. However, what they have ended up doing is framing this as a conversation about greedy teachers. Now, just when I put those two words together, can we all understand that this is a losing public relations strategy in addition to being just cruel and unnecessary and ignorant of the way that most teachers operate and how most teachers are spending money out of their own pockets to get the supplies they need in their classrooms and working longer hours than they're compensated for. So it's a really terrible way to frame this debate up. And then when the thoroughly vetted, actuarially analyzed, consultant-recommended legislation failed to pass, they ended up attaching at the last minute most of the provisions from that bill to a sewage bill at 10 o'clock at night. And, and barring the public from the committee hearing. Yes. Also bad choice. I mean, there are just so many decisions here that add insult to injury. So again, I think the IS sisterhood has it right. They took a problem that was a problem and was going to be ugly under any circumstance and made it infinitely worse through the process. Here is what drives me crazy about our governor in particular and the way he has handled this. He showed up. He said, we have to be adults. It's time to address this problem. Like you said, we are, everybody's on board. Okay, you're right. This is a problem. We have to address it. Then, after saying we're all going to act like responsible adults, if anyone disagrees with him, he pitches a temper tantrum and t- calls them a baby. Like, it's disjointed. 
If you want to act like a responsible adult, then act like a responsible adult when someone disagrees with you. And he doesn't do that. He just goes on full-blown attack mode. And it drives me insane. Like, we're all, in theory, on the same team here. But he never acts like that. Like, he never – it's the Democrats' fault. Anybody who's opposed is a big, lazy baby. And how dare you disagree that that with the exact way that I want to fix this problem. And this is why he – this is why they are all in this mess. Because he – by having that attitude, created an untenable position for Republicans in the House and Senate, even with total control of both houses. Like, they're human beings. They're elected officials. What did you think was going to happen? They're going to balk when people came and protested and screamed and yelled and were mad because you you weren't inviting anyone to the table to try to help solve this problem. You were not assuming any good motives from other players at the table, other stakeholders. It just, it was a disaster. And they made it, listen, I had said they made it, my husband and I talked about, like, to call everybody, you know, to come forward with this incredibly harsh plan without any desire to have some compromise. And then then to sort of cower was worse. Like, I think that, honestly, the Republicans in the House and Senate would have been better served by, like, just facing the anger head on and passing it anyway, in an open way, instead of cowering, cowering, hiding, passing it in the dark. Like, that's what they did in Wisconsin. They just faced the protest and passed it anyway. And they, it's like they took the po- worst possible road at every juncture. So our friend Angie, who appeared on the podcast before, sent me an email about this over the weekend and gave me permission to share it. And I think that her response to this as a public employee carries more weight than mine. She said, I will never understand why legislators chose this method for enacting Senate Bill 1. I think it's important when discussing this issue to acknowledge how hurt and angry all public employees feel about what has taken place over the last few days. We all recognize that while yesterday was about teachers, tomorrow may be about the pensions of police officers or county clerks or judicial employees like myself. As I speak with family and friends who are also public employees, I find I get the same response. I did nothing wrong. We are asked to provide vital services to our community for meager salaries and at the same time required by law to pay into a pension system that is now bankrupt through no fault of our own. The services that are provided by teachers, first responders, and court personnel, just to name a few, are not only necessary for our communities to remain healthy, safe places to live, but they often cause us to see or experience gut-wrenching situations that take a toll on our mental and physical well-being. And for this sacrifice, we are told that we are to bear the burden of fixing a problem we did not create. I could go on and on, but I honestly cannot begin to explain how heartbroken and betrayed I feel by what is happening in our state legislature. And I really appreciated that perspective from Angie. And it gets back to how I think this whole debate would have gone differently if at the beginning of it, Governor Bevan had said, this stinks. I hate that we have to talk about this. I hate that we have to even contemplate making changes to the bargain that we've struck with public employees. I hate that we have to ask for more sacrifice from people who already sacrifice a lot. I also hate Mm -hmm. that I'm probably going to have to ask for more sacrifice from taxpayers. This is a terrible situation that none of us created. It has been generations in the making. And I'm so sorry that we have to confront it now. But we do. I mean, I think that would have set us down a different course. Now, I understand that any conversation we have in Kentucky becomes hyperbolic sometimes, right? Like, we are not good at staying level-headed, especially when it comes to education. People can very quickly start to speak in these life or death terms that are not constructive. 
But I do think overall, the state was ready to have the adult conversation the governor wanted. And if he would have stuck to that, we could have too. But I'll tell you, like, Governor Bevan has taught me a lot about my own politics. (laughs) (laughs) Because at the beginning, I thought, here is this guy with whom I probably agree most of the time about the substance of policy. And I have style differences with him. He has shown me, though, how quickly style and substance bleed into one another. An example of that is in the State of the Commonwealth. He talked about increasing funding for our judicial system in Kentucky, with which is something I wholeheartedly agree with. Our judicial employees are not paid enough. Our Supreme Court, the design of our judicial system is that the Supreme Court justice, the chief justice of Kentucky's Supreme Court, is essentially supposed to function as the chief executive officer of the entire court system as a whole, too. So that's an enormous administrative responsibility. It assumes an enormous skill set that perhaps we don't want the chief justice of the Supreme Court to have, in addition to all the skills necessary to being the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So I am wholeheartedly in for more funding of our justice system. But then what that meant to Governor Bevan as the budget details came out is more funding on the prosecutorial side, not on the defense side. And legal aid funding has been severely jeopardized in Kentucky, which is a major problem. Mm-hmm. And it just shows me that it's it's kind of nice and comforting, especially for people like me in the era of Donald Trump, to say, well, maybe the style bugs me, but I'm with him on the substance. But the truth is those two things just are more and more connecting, or maybe they've always connected a lot and I just have refused to see it. It's just it doesn't work well as a way to get ourselves through some of these tough times. Speaking of the difference between style and substance, (laughs) China has an answer to the Trump administration's steel tariffs. They have gone after seemingly parts of his rural base by putting tariffs on several agriculture products, pork, some fruits and vegetables. I don't know if it's a trade war, but I think we're definitely in the middle of a trade tiff. I heard someone on, I think it was one of the New York Times podcasts, talking about a hot peace instead of a cold war with Russia. (laughs) And that's what it feels like in economic terms with me to China, that it's just getting more dangerous. Well, and it was really interesting. The political playbook this morning, we're recording on Monday, had had some economists saying that Donald Trump's not wrong that a a country with the trade surplus of China has more to lose in these sort of interactions than a country that runs a deficit like we do, which sort of makes sense to me. But I just see this as continuing to escalate. It's like this, the way they were about Russia. Well, Russia expelled our diplomats. And that was an answer to our response. Our response shouldn't have gotten a response and we reserve the right to respond to this. What? Okay, great. So I I don't, it's not, I don't think that there, anyone in this administration is going to go, all right, cool. They imposed some tariffs. We're all happy with how this ended. I just feel like this is going to continue to escalate. When we first started talking about trade, one of the things that I learned is that while the United States runs at a trade deficit, 
In some ways, it's advantageous to our economy because there is so much foreign investment in the United States. And then as we've continued our conversations about trade, I think you and I have come around to there are some serious problems with having so much foreign investment in the United States in addition to the upside. So all of it is a delicate balancing act. I'm wondering, in addition to the fact that things are going to cost more as all this happens, like let's all get right with that. If you want President Trump to do exactly what he said he was going to do on the campaign trail, so promises made, promises kept, as they like Mm -hmm. to say, we are going to have to spend a lot more money on consumer goods over time. So let's be honest about that. It's going to cost us all more money. Maybe your taxes are coming down. What you spend at the grocery store is going to go up. So as that happens, I wonder what the effect will be on foreign investment in the United States, especially from the Chinese, because it feels like the Chinese government has a hand in almost everything that comes out of that country, even in the private sector. Maybe Mm -hmm. that's overstated. But that's the piece of this that I find myself wondering about. On a very different note, we have been watching the events unfolding in Sacramento, California, where another unarmed black man, Stefan Clark, was shot by a police officer. The officer believed he was holding a gun. It turned out that he was holding a cell phone. And we're so sorry that this happened. We're so sorry for his family and the community there in Sacramento. And to everyone who continues to watch these shootings happen, wondering if it will ever change. And over the weekend, the autopsy results were released, and he was shot in the back. So even if they were concerned about um, what he was holding, just the facts, I mean, just the cold, hard facts of where he was shot, what happened, his um, grandmother, whose home, I believe, that whose yard he was in, the press conference of her saying, like, why did you go, right, to shooting him? Where was the stun gun? Where was a dog? Where was there? Are there any other sort of processes to de-escalate instead of going immediately to shooting him. It just is, it's heartbreaking. And there was also some developments out of Louisiana in the Alton Sterling case. They, they declined to charge the officers involved. I, I began to watch the body cam footage they just released and I had to stop. It was so, so terrible. Um, the, the way the officers were screaming and cussing at him, threatening to kill him immediately. Um, both of these officers have been fired I don't understand how, I mean, I'm glad that they fired. I'm glad there were repercussions, but the fact that there were no criminal charges, I'm not really sure of. I I guess I'm sure in that I understand that the the level of proof to basically to prove that the officer went in trying to kill somebody, our standard of proof in these cases is so difficult. And I think that's really the conversation that needs to be had in both of these situations to ultimately change this, to begin to change the environment that creates this sort of escalation and risk, particularly to black men has to be a conversation we have in this country. I was watching Meet the Press this weekend, and they discussed an article by David French, who is a conservative thinker. And David French said, we need to rethink police training because Mm. most police officers will tell you that there's no such thing as a routine traffic stop, that things can escalate so quickly, that people behave so erratically. And that's probably true. And we definitely need to prepare police officers for that. But David French's argument, as I understood it in this panel conversation, was that by training everyone to prepare for the worst, we're making the worst seem normal. And we're making everyone mentally ready for something catastrophic in routine situations. It reminded me of the conversations you and I've had, Sarah, a lot about the medical community. 
because you're prepared for something to be catastrophic. It's hard to see the mundane as actually mundane. And I thought that was such a good point, especially as I think about how the discussion on these police shootings sort of becomes Black Lives Matter or Back the Blue instead of both. But this makes these kinds of stories endanger our police officers more, too. You know, no one is benefited here. So I, I think that it's true that we need to really reset the way that we prepare police officers. It also reminds me of the discussion that we were having on our bonus episode about Waco and mm-hmm. the type of force that we equip police with. It's really hard to possess that kind of force and not use it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are going to move on now to compliment the other side. I will start since we're talking about Sunday um, morning shows. Chris Christie showed up this weekend, showed up. And you know what? I kind of like untethered Chris Christie. I'm here for it. He went after Scott Pruitt, was basically like, I don't know how he comes back from this. Also, side note, what the heck is going on with Scott Pruitt? There are some truly bizarre, beyond just the exploitive disregard totally and completely for tax dollar resources and his quote-unquote, missing a flight in Paris, give me a break. Scott Pruitt, give me a break. You did not miss your flight. You hung out in Paris, which is fine, but be honest about it. But then there's these, like, weird stories. He's renting condos from lobbyists for $50. Then he's found unresponsive, and Capitol Police have to break down the door. I don't know what the heck is going on over there, but I appreciated Chris Christie showing up and also saying, I don't know what the heck's going on. I don't know how he comes back from this. He was a terrible pick. The transition was a disaster. The whole thing about – I'm sorry. It's not funny because this is a government. People's lives are at stake. But the whole thing about um, Steve Bannon – you can't do a good transition with Steve Bannon in the back of an envelope. It was kind of funny. Chris Christie's good for a laugh. Let's just be honest. I'm having such a hard time sorting out what the facts of anything surrounding so the cabinet weird. are. I and mean, what is going on? When I saw David Shulkin interviewed this weekend, it's so strange to have someone saying, no, I was fired. I didn't quit. Mm-hmm. I was fired. That is so strange. And the questions to him about ethical violations You know, he defended so vigorously his trip overseas where he like went to Wimbledon and he said, you know, that was my free. Everybody has free time. You can't work 24 hours a day. And on my free time, I did some things. If I had sat in my hotel room, we wouldn't be talking about this. That sounds very reasonable. It also sounds terrible when you hear that somebody went to Wimbledon. And I feel like because there doesn't seem to be any coherent ethical oversight of this administration, it's just hard to know. Who to believe? And that brings me back to Chris Christie. He obviously has a really personal beef here because he did a lot of work to help the president and has gotten repaid not at all for that work. So I don't know how seriously to take him. It's just a strange situation. Well, here's the, here's how I feel about it. I don't mind at all saying something's going on. This is a disaster because I have no doubt people were watching Obama cabinet members this closely. And I don't remember all this crap coming out of the Obama administration. So clearly you can do this in an ethical manner in which it doesn't seem like you're wasting tax dollar resources constantly and consistently. Because, again, I feel confident that if they were, somebody would have noticed because they were on them like white on rice. So I don't know. I think that they're a disaster over there. Yeah, because they were definitely paying attention. Fox News would have been all over. If so, if oh my god, okay, I know we don't do this. I know we don't do this on the show, but I just want to take a moment that if Kathleen Sebelius in the middle of Obamacare had paid thirty one thousand dollars for a dining room set, Fox News would have imploded. Let's just be honest with ourselves. 
And it just makes me so mad <laughs> that all this waste is going on with the Republican Party that's supposed to hate waste. Ugh, whatever. Listen, I probably feel that even more strongly because mm-hmm. as a Republican voter, it makes me feel duped. Mm-hmm. Right. I said that I was voting for people who were going to be good stewards of public tax dollars, and they're not doing that. And it's very frustrating. And I agree that the coverage would have been wall to wall on a Kathleen mm-hmm. Sebelius dining room table because she was an Obama appointee, because the Affordable Care Act, because she was a woman. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. way that situation would have been covered would have been out of control. I think my point is just, is there anybody who can talk about this who doesn't have a bone to pick? Like yeah. every single person seems to have just like this little bit of personal edge in what they're talking about. And that's the problem when you have an administration that seems to be free of any neutrality. I don't know. I didn't mean to take that away from a compliment. I mean, I'm happy Chris okay. Christie is talking about it. I have complimented him before, but I just want to continue to say how much I appreciate the way Mark Warner conducts himself. Mm -hmm. I think that when Mark Warner is asked questions about the Russia probe, it is clear that he could say so much more than he says publicly. Mm -hmm. It's clear that he could use what he knows so much more politically than he chooses to use it. It is clear that he is... I think, very serious about his job as the head of this committee, very serious about getting to actual facts, and very serious about doing more than just taking down the Trump administration. His comments, especially about the need for Mark Zuckerberg to get himself in a chair in Washington, D.C. in front of Congress, I think are right on the money. And I think he is looking at long term, how do we keep American elections feeling like they have a sense of integrity and verifiability that we can all be comfortable with? So I appreciate Mark Warner's work very much. So next up, we are going to talk with Dr. Dana Fisher about some of her data coming out for the March for Our Lives. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. 
They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy We're going to talk now with Dr. Dana Fisher, who has been on the podcast before. She will tell you a little bit about her background. And then the first question that I ask her is to put this in context, the March for Our Lives in context with the women's marches and the other marches that she's been attending. So she'll talk a little bit about that. And then we'll discuss with her who attended and what her takeaways were. So I am here talking again with Dr. Dana Fisher. Dana, will you remind everyone just a little bit about your research in general, who you are, what you do, before we get into the events that you just covered? Okay, great. Uh, Good morning, Beth. Uh, I'm a sociologist. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland, and I have for 18 and a little bit years now been studying protest and activism. And one of the, the areas that I focus on is large-scale protest events such as the March for Our Lives. I was in the crowd, I guess a week and a day ago, a week and two days ago now, at the March for Our Lives as part of this project I'm doing called American Resistance, which is a project looking at how the resistance has grown and evolved since the inauguration. And there's been a lot of outrage that we talked about last time among the citizenry around a, a suite of issues, many of which are uh, the focus of for progressive politics in America, such as healthcare, such as immigration, such as climate change, women's rights, reproductive rights, and um, and then gun violence and gun control has not been a big focus in recent years. But then, with the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, that happened um, in February, all of a sudden there was a lot 
lot of attention to uh, gun violence, to the issue of gun control. And this is by far not the first school shooting, but it captured the American attention in new ways. And it's hard to say exactly what drove that. I would say that um, there's no question that the fact that the victims were high school students who were quick to become engaged in public discussions around policies around guns played a role. It also was that the these young people started to participate in media discussions very quickly, started targeting and discussing this with politicians quickly. And, and a lot of people started paying attention. Not only did they start talking to the media and start talking and, and focusing on politics and politicians quickly, and I would say that part of that decision was likely in response to the way the resistance has unfolded. And a lot of these groups have been focusing on local politics and ways of engaging politically, such as communicating with elected officials and going to town hall meetings. So there has been um, this kind of toolkit out there for people to get engaged in politics that was readily available for these kids when they started becoming involved. At the same time, there was this decision to organize the March for Our Lives, which is was a huge rally in Washington, D.C., and I believe 800 other sites had events simultaneously. But the rally in D.C. actually attracted the attention of a number of uh, famous people, including Oprah Winfrey and George Clooney and his wife, both of whom contributed a large sum of money to help facilitate and make uh, the March for Our Lives possible. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I wonder how that changes the event. How does it change? I mean, this was the first time I have to say I've been studying protests in America, but also internationally since 2000, as I've mentioned before. And I have to say that this is the first time I've ever known of a protest event to be so well-resourced and particularly well-resourced mm. by famous people whom I've heard played a role in helping to uh, design the event and not to control it, but to, to contribute to it. Even um, the Women's March didn't have that much money? They, no, I'm not saying they didn't have that much money. I'm saying they didn't have these large, famous personalities who were contributing money and um, contributing in terms of kind of personality and cachet. Interesting. Uh, for example, I would not be surprised if the March for Our Lives had happened without Oprah and George Clooney involved. I'm not sure they would have been able to attract the level of entertainment they did. I mean, if you looked at the lot lineup of people who performed in Washington, D.C., it was awe-inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, having people who are very no well-known in the entertainment industry certainly helped that. I mean, there's, that's not to say the Women's March didn't ha have amazing people participate, although the Women's March also headlined a number of activists who have been involved in women's rights for decades. Well, and here's what I think is really fascinating. I don't think you were, you weren't at the Million Mom March in the 90s, were you? I was not, although actually one of my colleagues sent me a paper she wrote that came out. Um, I thought it was 2000 was the march, not a, yeah, the that sounds Yeah, that's okay. probably right, because it was right after Columbine <laughs> in 1999. Right. So I attended that march. I, I was a victim of a school shooting in 1997. Columbine happened. And that march was really, at least in my memory, was like very 
sort of promoted and pushed by Rosie O'Donnell, who had the talk show at the time. She Mm -hmm. was very passionate about Columbine. But that march was so interesting because, you know, let's just think about the name. So that was the Million Mom March. This was the March for Our Lives. So that was very parent focused. This one was very kid focused, even though I attended with my mom and a classmate of classmate of mine and her mom and I, we attended. I don't know how much the paper went into, but I would be interested to know. I wonder like this sort of the breakdown parent to kid ratio with the two marches. Although you said that there still weren't a ton of teenagers or a ton of kids at this march. No, there weren't. In fact, my colleague, Kristen Goss, who is at Duke University, she and I had a conversation on social media on Sunday, the day after the March for Our Lives, where we were chatting as I was running the analyses on the data that I collected at the March for Our Lives. And it ended up that the, the findings were very similar to what she found, and she published her paper in Women in Politics in 2003. I'm happy to send you a link to it. Uh, She actually sent it to me. I hadn't read it before. And I was just comparing, in fact, my piece in the Washington Post that came out last week, midweek, I actually talk about how what I found at the March for Our Lives was in a lot of ways more similar to the Million Mom March than what a lot of people were talking about who were Mm. discussing what had happened. In terms of the average age, and educational attainment. I did not actually collect data on um, kids and uh, whether the kids were living at home, which is something that uh, the data that Kristen used had. So I'm just looking, I actually pulled up the table here, but um, she, and also in terms of looking at political orientation, at the Million Mom March, 20% of the people in the crowd self-identified as moderates. We had 16% were self-identified moderates in the crowd. Um, at the Million Mom March, it was extremely highly educated. 91% of the people there had a college degree. Wow. And yeah, that's super high. I mean, and, and I actually thought it was pretty impressive that at the March for Our Lives, we had 72% had a bachelor's degree or higher. And that actually is very consistent with all of the marches we've seen since the resistance began where it's just a highly educated crowd. Demographically speaking, also, if you look at the racial composition, uh, 78% of the people in the crowd were white, which is almost identical to what we saw at the Women's March 2017 and 2018, as well as the People's Climate March, 77% of the people were white, and at the March for Our Lives, 78% were white. So that's pretty similar. It's so interesting that you say this, because my gut has been that the Million Mom March was a very, very similar group with a very, very similar sort of set of skills and even passion about the subject. People were really, really upset after Columbine, felt like it was getting worse, felt like it was unacceptable. That was a really traumatic event, I think, for the country. But I just think the difference now is the organizing capacity because of social media and because of the Internet. I also think um, Moms Demand Action and sort of every town is is much better at keeping people plugged in and passionate and, and directing their their energy and tension. Like Million Mama March, there wasn't like, you know, already we have a Western Kentucky chapter of Moms Demand Action. So after you marched, or if like we did that before the march, you know, like that was already set up. So the march was sort of, okay, we have this this chapter and there's already so many chapters around the country, the march was just like one thing you could do with your chapter. Whereas what I remember at the time from the Million Mom March is like, that was what we did. And then afterwards, we were kind of like, 
we didn't have anything to do next. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I think that there's a lot more organizational capacity because there have been so many school shootings and there's been so much shootings. I mean, I saw in the crowd also people from the Giffords uh, group who were out there in D.C. Uh, What I think is interesting. So there's there's more organizational capacity and there's uh, also this ability to reach out to people quickly and effectively through social media that we really didn't Mm -hmm. have before. That's become uh, a really nice way to activate people around all sorts of issues. And I think the third thing that's worth noting here, though, is that also um, because the resistance has been so um, persistent, so people have been marching so frequently, I think, and I think also simultaneously people are paying a lot more attention to politics. You have a lot more people primed to march and primed to engage than we saw in, you know, 2000, for example. And I just think we're in a heightened period of civic engagement overall in our country. And so I think when people are asked to participate, I think there are just more people who are willing and able and interested in participating. I mean, something I haven't spoken about at all with anybody so far is the fact that the while the March for Our Lives turned out people who were interested and focused on gun violence for sure, there was a lot of repetition in terms of people participating in the March for Our Lives as well as other large-scale marches since the resistance began. Interesting. So, for example, 78% of the people in the crowd reported going to uh, the 2017 Women's March, not necessarily wow. in Washington, D.C., somewhere. You oh, know, wow. that's, that's more than three quarters. A yeah. quarter of the people who participated said they attended the March for Science. 19% attended the People's Climate March. 51% attended the 2018 Women's March. So these were people, so a lot of the people in the crowd were people who have been active around these other progressive issues and progressive events since the inauguration. Which I guess is not terribly surprising given, given your findings from the Women's March, because one of the most interesting pieces of data, I thought, in our conversation about the Women's March was you sharing that people had such a wide range of causes that brought them out. I think that's completely true. And and I actually think that we saw even more of that at the March for Our Lives. And I actually, my explanation for the reason that we see such a range of motivations at the March for Our Lives, and also in my, in my interpretation, more moderates than we've seen at any other time in any of these events, I actually think that's due to the fact that the structure of the event was much more about like a like a music festival with a mm. purpose rather than this being a march to yell in the streets. And I mean, in fact, they even played, you know, they played music before the event began. Um, Apparently the Parkland kids had curated a list, a playlist that they played over and over again. And we were out in the crowd serving starting at 9 a.m. And we kept hearing the same songs because they they had it on repeat, right? But it was playing loud music prior to the event. And usually at these kinds of events you hear chanting and marching and people have musical instruments or they're playing, you know, drums or something, but it was so loud. Most of that couldn't happen. And so it was much more channeled, but in a lot of ways, because of all the, we'll call them headliners, you know, these performers who were highlighted on the March for Our Lives website, I think people who may not have otherwise participated came out to see the free concert. Mm. And so in a lot of ways, I think it provided a gateway into um, a different form of activism. So it might have been people who are sympathizers to issues of 
gun control and gun violence, but may not have been people who are, you know, marchers, right? Aren't people who have marched before. And that's why we saw 27% of the people in the crowd were new and have never protested before in their lives. Do you think that that will be unique to this event? Or do you think that this is maybe a beginning of innovation in activism? That's a really good question. I mean, I actually, in my initial thought would have been this kind of what we call tactical innovation. So this is a kind of a new tactic to get people in the streets. I would have originally said, yes, this is great. Look at, they brought out new people. It was a huge crowd. There were crowds across the country and it brought out new people. And that's great because it's hard to keep bringing new people out. Mm-hmm. But the fact that nobody, it's, you know, so far, very few people want to talk about this. And instead, the narrative has been mostly focused on this as this quote unquote student movement. And the Parkland kids have been front and center in terms of, you know, that's what we should be talking about rather than all of these new people, many of whom are parents, many of whom whom are new to protests and politically moderate and talking about them. And I actually think that uh, based on the way that the conversation has been directed since the event, I'm not sure that people are going to focus on that because I feel like uh, there, there's concern that talking about that may cheapen the impact, which I think is completely wrong. I don't think it cheapens the impact whatsoever. I think there are all these opportunities to think about how when we do these kinds of innovations to get more people involved, it provides these opportunities. And as I think you, Beth, pointed out, there's all of this organizational infrastructure that exists through you know, Moms Demand and every town to then take all these new people and get them involved in their communities, which is obviously what needs to happen for any real social change to happen. I thought I remember you telling me you have a colleague who does sort of the um, equivalent research for conservative marches. And I just I'm totally intrigued to someone who lives in D.C. Um, and lived in D.C., who used to watch the makeup of the crowd during the pro-life marches. And they were, I would, I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but they, I think they were a majority because there were huge buses that would come from Catholic high schools. Do you have that data? Because I think that would be so interesting compared to the March for Our Lives, which was like set up by kids and how many, what the actual percentage was. I actually, I don't have those data. I mean, I know, so Michael Heaney at University of Michigan has collected data at um, both, all the big marches since the inauguration. So he, um, so he would be able to compare. I don't know which, I don't know what data he's entered because I collect data using electronics tablets. So we have the data entered. Oh, right. Like automatically. Automatically, which is amazing and saves me, you know, weeks of data entry. He has paper surveys. His surveys are much longer than mine. So I don't know the degree to which he has that information right now. I mean, the other thing I would just say is that because of the the way that uh, my, my protocol is regulated for collecting data, I'm not allowed to collect data from people under 18. Um, mm. So I don't actually, so I was able to count the teenagers in the crowd, but I could not actually collect data from them if that makes sense, because yeah. I, because my, so my uh, protocol requires that I would get parental consent if I talk to anybody under 18, which I know is, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people in the crowd say, but I'm, you know, or my, I have a parent there and they say, oh, talk to my kid. My kid wants to be counted and I give you approval. 
but there are, there's a whole slew of processes that I have to go through if I wanted to collect data from uh, children as defined as people under 18. And I have just chosen only to collect data from adults. So for me, I don't have those data. I, even if I were collecting data at, um, at these other marches, I wouldn't be able to collect data from kids unless I, I worked with my university to set up a protocol that they were comfortable with. But I believe that Michael does have some of that. I just don't know what's entered. So I can't compare. I'm sorry to say. So you mentioned a couple of times that the crowd here uh, was not a majority of people under 18. Can you tell us what you know about the age spread of the crowd? So so basically, in total, we actually talked to 308 people. 30 of those people were under 18, which meant that I only could collect, I could only count that they existed in the crowd, but I then could not actually administer the survey to them. And 22 people refused to participate. So we ended up with what we call a... Uh, Refusal rate of 7%, about, and the percent under 18 was 9.7%, right? So less than 10. And the response rate was like 93% is what we ended up with. Uh, when we look at the spread of ages, we only collected data. Uh, if people were under 18, we just actually didn't ask them how old they were. We just counted them as under 18. That's the 30 of them. But then 19 and 18-year-olds, we had 10 people. Um, and we had 12 people who were between the ages of 20 and 25. So if you look at people who are 25 and under, that's 52 people. Is that fairly consistent with what you've seen at other protests? Well, what we've seen at other protests is that historically, the millennials in these protest events have not come out and led the crowd by any stretch. Although it's funny because if you just look at the adults in the crowd, it was an older group than we've seen at the other marches. So at mm. this event, the average age was 49 point something. And actually at the both women's marches, it was 43. At the March for Science, the average age was 41. And at the People's Climate March, it was 42. Mm. So I would say that, you know, the average is around in the, the young 40s, but this pump, this pushed it up higher. And some people have said, well, maybe that's because you had a lot of parents in the crowd. Completely makes sense. Parents of teenagers. That yeah, sounds right. about where, where you'd put them. But that, I haven't been asking that question, so it wasn't on my survey. So I don't know. I can just tell you from talking to people in the crowd. That is very interesting. I wonder where you think protest goes next. Like, did you leave March for Our Lives thinking, well, at the next big event, here are some things that I expect to see given what I've seen so far? I think the biggest thing that I left March for Our Lives thinking is how are all these new people who came out to see a free concert, how are they going to get involved in gun control or the resistance more broadly? And I know that the, the new people, many of them were more, you know, told me that their main motivation for coming out was President Trump and his policies. So those people are ripe for participation in the resistance for sure, because, you know, the way I define the resistance is people who are mobilizing to challenge uh, the policies of the Trump administration. So these are those they're they're likely, you know, participants. But the question is, how do they get channeled into doing anything, particularly because, you know, in a lot of these protests, you have organizations leading different things going on throughout the crowd, their chants, their activities. I mean, and I know there were voter registration drives that were taking place throughout the crowd by many different groups. The Hip Hop Caucus did one. I think Move On was there doing one. There were lots of different groups doing them. But I mean, my biggest experience and my my takeaway was the the amazing 
amazing rush of people who were trying to basically rush to Pennsylvania Avenue so they could see the stage. Hmm. And it was people feeling like they were missing the concert. Interesting. And, you know, and so I actually, my daughter came with me. This is her first, it was her first protest. It was her first experience doing social science. She has come away thinking that what I do is quite boring. Um, <laughs> and I have to say, I would like to thank all of the people in the crowd, most of whom were women who kept offering my daughter food because she was clearly, she's just, if you, you know, imagine your children constantly saying that they're bored and hungry. That was my daughter daughter at the March for Our Lives because, you know, we got there early and it wasn't this, you know, you know, audience participation kind of activity like you see in a protest where people are chanting and they're doing things, but rather people listening to this playlist and waiting for the concert to start. So she was very um, underwhelmed with what I do. She's decided she wants to be a marine biologist now. So, you know, what are you going to do? There's lots of need for that as well. Um, (laughs) And she's only 11. So who knows what she'll decide. But, uh, but the thing is what I was, this my first time that I actually was worried we were going to get stuck and not be able to get out just because people were just continuing to rush at Pennsylvania Avenue as we were trying to leave the area. Um, and so, you know, so in the end, I just wonder, I don't know what comes next for these people. I certainly hope that what comes next is they get really involved and they stay involved because, you know, my my belief is that that's what makes America great and that's what makes our democracy so wonderful is that citizens participate. Just in terms of um, where this goes next, I know that with the Women's March, you also found out people's political affiliation and you said that there was a high percentage of moderates at this event. Did you get any Republicans in your survey? Well, so I don't ask them their party, but I ask them their... Uh, political orientation. So 3% of the people said that they were either right-leaning or extremely right-leaning. 16% identified as moderates or middle of the road, and 79% were left or extremely left-leaning. So, um, I mean, so 3% uh, right-leaning is more than the Women's March 2017, but less than the Women's March 2018. Very interesting. interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's also the other thing that we do have is I know that I did ask who people voted for, and uh, 1% of the people whom we surveyed voted for reported voting for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. But we also, um, you're, you're also given the opportunity to say 4% of the people said they did not vote, 3% uh, voted for a third party candidate, 4% that said they were not eligible to vote, which meant that they were either under the age of 18. Or in some cases are non-U.S. citizens who are in the crowd. Hmm. Which is not to say that they were illegal immigrants, but rather that they were non-U.S. citizens. Well, thank you so much, Dana. This is really interesting. And we oh, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so it. much. So I know the next March that's coming, as far as I understand, is we've got another March for Science coming up in April. That one's not, I don't expect that to be big. And I, I, the, the big question is if, if these events all keep be, all become annual events which I'm not sure they will, but if they do, we saw that with the Women's March, it will be very hard to sustain this kind of turnout. I mean, and I'm not sure the March for Our Lives is even considering that right now, but the March for Science, I know, is expected to turn out a much smaller crowd this year. Last year, they had about 100,000 people, and it was pouring rain for much of it, which was very sad for everybody in the crowd, and also, I thought, for my, my team with our new tablets that were getting soaking wet. 
Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it'll be really interesting to see where everything goes from here. One of the things I will be doing is I'm going, I got email addresses and contact information for people who are willing to be followed up with in the crowd when I surveyed them. And this summer, my plan is to go back to all of these people, which now is about, you know, I've surveyed almost 2000 people total since the resistance began. And I'd say I have email addresses for about 1300 of them. I'm going to survey all of them to find out what they're doing since they were surveyed and since they participated in terms of what they're doing in their communities and what organizations they're working with. So we can get a better sense of the types of activities they're doing on an everyday basis. We would love to hear more about that as your work continues and also about the March for Science. I think it'll be interesting to know what happens when these events aren't as kind of blockbuster, but are still happening and what kind of what kind of results come from that. So remind people, if you would, where they can find you if they want to know more about what you do. Great. Well, my website is www.drfisher.umd for University of Maryland.edu. And all of the work that I'm talking about here and that I, um, and as I write it, is going up on uh, the American Resistance website, which is AmericanResistanceBook.com. So if you go there, you'll see the most recent stuff. And as I write chapters, the chapters will also be put up. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I thought it was so interesting, Sarah, to hear that the average age of the participants at March for Our Lives was in the late 40s, -hmm. because that is so divorced from the life that March for Our Lives has taken on online. It makes sense to me. You know, what I really wish we knew is sort of the the composition of D.C. versus the local marches, just because you have to have adults to travel. It's not like the teenagers can, like, you know, hop on a Greyhound bus by themselves and take their little booties up to D.C. So I think that's part of it. I still think that this is primarily um, a youth-led movement. Um, I just think that that speaks to sort of getting there. And But I still think there are a lot, a lot of adults very passionate about this. And it sounds a lot like the makeup of, as I talked about in the interview, the, the march I went to as a teenager, the Million Mom March. You know, it's interesting to me that we have so quickly turned the Parkland survivors into celebrities Mm -hmm. in the same way that we take kids who go on American Idol and turn them into celebrities. And their lives become about how people have sort of a chip on their shoulder about becoming famous in the United States. Like, I keep seeing tweets from the right-wing media that disparage these kids. Like, they're taking advantage of the fact that their friends were shot. Mm Mm-hmm. And it just tears me up. I don't think any of these kids would trade what's happening now for the opportunity to go back to the world they knew before someone came into their school with a gun. I mean, I have absolutely zero sympathy for Laura Ingram and her likes. And I have no problem with these kids using the platform um, available to them, built by them exploited by them. I don't care what language you want to use, honestly. I really don't. Um, To make something of the tragic things that happened to them. You know, I think it's going to be very difficult difficult for them because for better or for worse in this country, once you receive a certain amount of fame, like you said, 
you become a product, not a person. You become something that we all feel like we have some sort of ownership in. And that is a lot to carry at 16 or 17 years old. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Well, that's why when I hear conversations in the vein of well, they're not immune to criticism because they're teenagers. They've put themselves out there. There's a part of me that says certainly their policy precision positions are not immune from criticism. Mm-hmm. 
Certainly the adults who are using this tragedy and some, I think, righteously and some not so much, that seems to me to be an unfruitful conversation getting into people's motives. But if you want to go there, there, there is space to talk about that. There is space to talk about is activism enhanced or diluted by funding from Oprah and George Clooney? That is not where I want to spend my time and energy, but I'm but I understand people spending time and energy having that discussion. But the adult and mother in me says that as human beings, I am willing to give a whole lot of grace to these teenagers. Yeah, that's I exactly. do think they are kind of immune from criticism as people because they are children in the throes of grief. Every time they're on television, one of them absolutely breaks down. I mean, they're bearing their soul. We should not be having conversations like Emma Gonzalez for president. That is too much to saddle a high school student with, even a high school student as impressive as these students are. And they are. I don't want to take anything away from them in this conversation either. But yeah, I do kind of think that these kids are immune from criticism. Not their policy positions, but they're but they're persons. Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. And I don't like just let them screw up. Like we had a listener right. who tweeted us very sincerely about Emma Gonzalez and her sort of the jacket she wore to the March for Our Lives. It had the Cuban flag on it. It was very um militaristic, I guess. And and you know, there is and I think that the point was True. I, I don't have any beef with the the argument that let's not glamorize um, Castro or any other of these sort of quote unquote revolutionary figures um, by wearing these flags and wearing these jackets and like okay yes but she's allowed to screw up like she's sixteen so I don't even know how old Emma Gonzalez is I don't, I don't care I know that she's a kid in high school and she does not understand because her brain is not fully developed the part that processes the consequences of our actions. Now, that is a very combustible environment to have somebody with a national platform, no doubt about it. But maybe it wouldn't be if we just gave a little bit of grace and said, yep, she got that wrong. That's okay. That doesn't make her a bad person, undeserving of her platform. Like, she got that one wrong. Like, I just I just have such a low, or maybe it's that's the opposite. I have such a high threshold to, of outrage with these kids. Like, I kind of even feel the same way about God save me, Roseanne. Like, I just don't care. Like, I just, it's not, I don't want to say I don't care. It's not that I don't think these points are important. But the idea that everything has to have, sort of every misstep, every misstatement needs to have consequences immediately. And look, I mean, you could turn this around and make the con- make the argument for Laura Ingram. I just my threshold for like her consequences is much lower. Like I don't sure lose advertisers. I do, that that's appropriate to me. Does that I, I don't know. I guess I just had this very sort of <laughs> arguably wishy washy standard for like what someone says who's in the public media, how mad I'm willing to get about it, and what I think the consequences should be. Like Bren tweeted us about Roseanne that she she yeah she tweeted this random crazy thing about like Donald Trump has freed all these children from sex slavery, which is clearly one of those bananas conspiracy theories. Like that's crazy. And he was like, she should not have a platform. Okay. But what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to censor her and kick her off Twitter? Does that mean anyone who holds a political opinion that like Rosie O'Donnell 
thinks some like 9-11 conspiracy theories are true and talked about it in The View. Are we kicking her out of everything? Or consequences just means that we say, like, that's bananas. I'm just not going to watch. Like, can we let the market be the consequences? Like, I don't know. I just, it's the outrage machine. It kind of wears me out on both sides. It is very difficult to know how much to separate the creator of something from the thing itself. I think that's mm. really hard. And it's and something Roxane that, Gay talked about that really beautifully in her editorial about Roseanne, which I thought was it's such a that's exactly I think that's so true. Like that's that's what we can't figure out, I don't think. And it's hard enough to figure that out on an individual level. Mm-hmm. And I think we really go astray when we try to collectively figure it out for each other on a societal level and turn it into a test of whether you're with me or against me. Mm-hmm. Now, I can understand hearing what I just said. And saying, well, if you want the market to decide, then isn't the best thing to do to organize boycotts? And I do make that argument on Twitter a lot. When people are upset about a boycott, I always say, like, that's the market deciding. I mean, I think that is a much more effective form of regulation than anything that comes out of Congress. Yeah. When a bunch of people get together and say this was unacceptable, we're not going to use this company anymore. And I get very I have very low tolerance for conservative media calling that fascism. Because that is the private sector at work. Yep. What do we what do we want? Because I don't think it's inappropriate to talk about sort of these two groups in the same way. Not to not to make an analogy between Roseanne and the Parkland students, because clearly there are vast these kids were thrust into the spotlight. They didn't have a choice. She's an entertainer. She chose it. But I just think the that profit there's... motive is a big difference. I yeah, mean, when huge you said that about difference. Laura Ingram, uh, Laura Ingram is quite different from David Hogg on a lot of um, levels. But a big one is that her outrage is about money, and his is not. Right, right. And so let's, but let's say like one of these kids wants to write a book. Am I mad about that? No, I'm not mad about that. And I, I guess I'm just struggling with how to put into words, like you said, like how do we separate it, and what do we think is the right response. Because if you find there are people for better or for worse who find what these kids say abhorrent in the same love in the same way that much of the country finds what Roseanne says is abhorrent. And so I guess I just wish we could set like you said, like we could just separate and say, I find what she says abhorrent. And so I'm not going to support her. I find what these kids say abhorrent, but I'm not going to attack them as human beings. Like if we could just separate, it's. I guess it goes back to what we were saying before about the othering. Like we have to separate. I find what you say abhorrent, but you are still a human being deserving of dignity and respect. I'm not willing to censor you as a liberal. So we'll just let the market play this out. If there are enough people that what Roseanne says in her personal political beliefs is not bothersome enough to support her television show, I'm okay with that. And I think we all have to be. And if there are enough people who support the Parkland kids enough to take out somebody like Laura Ingram, then we got to be okay with that too on both sides of the aisle. Do you know what I mean? Like we just have to let the market play out without deciding that someone is undeserving to speak. I think that's what bothers me about it. It's this undercurrent of you don't get to talk. We've decided you don't get to talk. And that makes me really uncomfortable. And Sometimes talk means a TV show and we'll just have to let it live or die. And sometimes talk means Twitter and sometimes, you know what I mean? But that there's just this 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 bubbling undercurrent of 
We don't, we don't want to hear what you have to say. And to me, it's this, my friend has this thing called a parasite theory. And I think this is true. Even like, I think that there was something very beneficial to our society when they, we had that March in Charleston and just this, this nasty undercurrent of American society was laid bare and we all had to look at it like, a you know, parasites grow in the dark and no matter how ugly the speech is, we, if we go, if we put it out in the light and say, all right, how do we feel about this? We're not going to shut it down, but at least it has to live in the light. And you have to be honest with ourselves about it instead of trying to shut it away because that just gives it power. And so I just feel like there's there's something to be said for, yeah, it's gross and it's ugly, but like let everybody see this ugliness that Roseanne, maybe it's beneficial that somebody like Roseanne is saying this bananas conspiracy theory so that people who watch her show and think they share something and in common with that viewpoint, then get exposed to the fact that some people with this viewpoint think that there's global child sex rings and Donald Trump is shutting them down and that's bananas. So I don't know. I guess I guess I just feel like there is beneficial. I don't know. I guess I'm going on like sort of a free speech rant here. Like everybody gets to talk and sometimes it's going to be really gross, but I'd rather see it and hear it and have to listen to it and know it exists than bury my head in the sand and shut it away. I think that there is the sentiment that everybody gets to talk and sometimes it's going to be really gross and sometimes it's just going to be imperfect. Mm. And we don't seem to calibrate our responses differently. We seem to take imperfect in the same way that we take really gross. And that's silly. There can be gradation in these matters, right? Similarly, people are allowed to have different priorities, And so Mm -hmm. I don't think that you're a bad human being if you thought Roseanne was really funny and want to watch it, despite knowing that she has these bananas views. You just might not prioritize that issue the same way someone else does. And you're allowed to do that. That's okay. I'm not going to watch Roseanne because I watched the pilot and didn't think it was funny. (laughs) And I'm not going to go back and watch it because I don't think it's funny. But I don't know that I would prioritize her politics in such a way that if I thought it was really funny, I would keep watching it. I I don't know that I would make that decision. It's just not a decision point for me because I didn't enjoy it. And that's true with every boycott. You know, to me, part of letting the market speak is how many people prioritize this sufficiently to create that kind of market disruption. And I think it's really important to just let that happen. I just don't like it when we conflate First Amendment principles with private action. Mm. And what's happening with the Parkland teens is still private action. Yeah. And so you can disagree with a lot of what they have to say. That's fine. You're allowed to do that. I don't know why, though, the next leap is all of the unbelievable, ungracious, unforgiving kind of commentary that we're seeing about them. And I recognize that I'm being hypocritical here because all of that commentary is private action, too. The government isn't trying to shut the Parkland teens up. Right. But it's just mean. Why are you being mean to a bunch of kids? Laura Ingram, pick out somebody who got rejected from their colleges. That's just mean. You have kids. Would you want another adult to talk to your kid like that? I don't think it's a judicious use of platform. And that's the difference, right? There is, do you have a platform and are you allowed to say something? And is this judicious? Which is what a lot of people are saying about Roseanne, right? Mm. Is this judicious of the channel that is putting Roseanne on television? Perhaps not. I don't know. I don't want to be the arbiter of that. I do know that picking on 
people under age 18 who have just buried their friends in my book qualifies as objectively not judicious. Well, we strayed pretty far from the March for Our Lives. So we do thank Dana Fisher for coming on and talking to us about this and opening up a, a larger conversation about the Parkland kids and their platforms, including the March for Our Lives. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? Okay. So I've started watching this documentary on Netflix, which you are going to watch. And I'm, I have a feeling we might have a, a another pop culture themed bonus episode on our Patreon. It's called Wild Wild Country on Netflix. I don't even know where to begin. It's about this, the followers of an Indian guru who kind of like took over part of Oregon and then things just get crazier and crazier from there. Like at one of the beginning episodes, they say, if somebody wrote this as fiction, you'd be like, ah, it's not believable. And that is accurate. It is bananas. It sweeps in freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the, you know, freedom to vote, homelessness, mental issues, sex, sex culture. Hi, y'all. It is so bananas. I can't wait for you to watch it. Anybody else who's out there watching that, I desperately need to talk about it. Wild, wild country, y'all. Get on it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it. I thought that we had an interesting conversation about Waco. I continue to think about Waco constantly. It really affected me. So I will will watch this. And I want to say that you have brought on all the Friday Night Lights people into my email and my social media feeds. I cannot say that I'm going to make that an immediate priority because there are a lot of other things that I want to watch. But I, I promise at some point I will watch at least the first season. Everyone seems to agree that the second season yeah, just skip not it. so great. Yeah, just totally skip the second one. But the other ones are really good. It's just skip over the second one. I mean, you still get to look at Taylor Kitsch. So that's not bad for the whole second season. But yeah, there's just like this sort of banana storyline. I don't know what happened. But it's it's worth it. And, you know, now you're just going to get emails about how it should be your top priority. So good luck with that. <laughs> don't push too hard against my Darth Vader voice that says I will do what I want to do. Don't at her, y'all, about Friday Night Lights. Don't do it. <laughs> well, I wanted to say, since it's Easter weekend, it's just kind of been on my mind that I should say this on the podcast. Because I think over holiday weekends, we're all posting the best of our lives online. Mm. And it feels like, what a wonderful time. And it is a wonderful time. And there were lots of great things about my weekend. But I also wanted to share that I spent a not insubstantial portion of the weekend in tears over parenting issues. And I have these great kids. They are healthy. They don't need anything from me that is out of the range of completely normal. I have a loving spouse who cares as much about being a dad as I care about being a mom. So under all these great circumstances, it is still so hard sometimes Mm. and hard in a way that just breaks me down. And that made me think about all the times I spent weekends in tears over other things in life, right? Like I remember some weekends in my college apartment just being a wreck all weekend, sometimes about some guy, sometimes about the fact that there wasn't some guy, sometimes about an exam or something with a friend or parents. I remembered a time in the sorority that just had me feeling like a disaster. And all of it, you know, comes down to just the sense of am I not? enough? Am I screwing up life in every way? And I just thought maybe somebody out there needs to hear that in the midst of seeing 
all of these happy family pictures going up that it's there can be lots of happy family pictures and at the same time some real struggle behind it and I loved Richard Rohr's take. I know we talk about Richard Rohr a lot on the podcast, but I loved his take on Easter as being about how we are made better by woundedness and kind of the example of in the Bible, Christ saying, here, touch these wounds, even after the resurrection, that the wounds are still there and how Easter in that way is just about constant survival and renewal and perseverance. And so that's kind of, I know that's like a heavy way to end the show, but that's what's been on my mind. Well, let me just say that I posted some really cute pictures of my little boys in their bow ties. But the reason I watched so much Wild Wild Country is because I got in a fight with my three-year-old and I locked him out of the room I was in and didn't talk to him for an hour. So that's how I'm like, that's the struggle bus I was on yesterday (laughs) because he is just I mean, I didn't lock him out of the room. There was another adult in the house. Let me just be clear about that. But I told my husband, I was like, I'm locking myself in this room right now. I don't want to talk to the baby dictator for like an hour because he is pushing. He's he's fully in the wise and he's fully in the I'm not going to do that only because you asked me to it, asked me to do it. And it's not like I haven't dealt with two, three year olds previous to this, but he pushed me right over the edge yesterday. I thought I was going to lose my brain and my mind and my spirit and my soul. So, yeah, I'm glad y'all saw those cute pictures, but Beth is right. Let's let's fully allow for the bubbling struggle <laughs> underneath everything, particularly three-year-olds. Oh, my God, why is he so mean to me? Okay, sorry. Well, and, like, something I say a lot is we just have to give ourselves a break as parents because we are going to mess up and we are going to screw our kids up. And we got an email about that saying, actually, we're not. Our kids are really resilient. I totally agree with that. I think we're saying the same thing in different ways. My point is just – we are we are meant to struggle. Mm-hmm. Like there is not going to be an experience of parenting that is struggle free. And then for our kids, no matter what we do as parents, they are not going to have a struggle free life. That this is just part of all of it. And so we don't have to create the perfect experience for them because they're not meant to have it. If we did, we would make them less capable of, of getting through life and all of the things that accompany it. Because this is just part of being a human being. And, you know, I think that affects us politically, too. So maybe that connects to some of what we've been talking about. It does in my mind, at least. So speaking of the perfect life and our struggle with the vision of what we want and what we have, on The Nuanced Life this week, we are going to be talking about HGTV. I'm really excited for this. I'm so excited about this conversation. I'm in the midst of a kitchen renovation, so it's particularly apt. Um, so tune in tomorrow on the Nuance Life. We're going to have an extensive conversation about HGTV, um, the good, the bad, the ugly of how we feel about our homes right now. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash pantsuitpolitics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.